Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the CHEST webinar on vaccines. Um, who should go first? Uh, we're very excited that you're all here and we have an amazing panel of experts this afternoon. And we're gonna start with Dr. Rick Bright introducing himself. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Rick Bright. I am the former director of BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority that's in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I am a PhD in immunology and virology, spending most of my career studying and developing vaccines. And currently I have the privilege though of serving on the Biden-Harris COVID-19 Advisory Board. Thanks. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Hubert. Uh, I am a physician and public health researcher in New York City. Uh, I work as a hospitalist at Lower Manhattan Hospital. And um, I have spent the last 20 years working on uh, various aspects of emergency preparedness and emergency logistics for bad things happening. Um, currently, I'm the policy lead for a new entity called the COVID-19 International Modeling Consortium that is led out of Cornell University, my own university, and also the University of Oxford in England. Uh, it's a participatory modeling collaborative that has about 40 member organizations and individuals from 40 different states, uh, including um, uh, the World Health Organization, Eastern Mediterranean Region Organization. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm a critical care and infectious disease physician. I practice at uh, the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. I'm an associate professor of medicine at the Uniformed Services University and uh, currently have the privilege of chairing CHEST's COVID-19 task force. I uh, am a vaccine investigator and currently am the uh, site PI for the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine trial uh, here in San Diego, as well as working with NIAID on the adaptive COVID treatment trial again, as the uh, DOD coordinating PI for those studies. And I should probably insert my standard disclaimer here that anything I say is the opinions of myself and not the official position of the Department of Navy, Department of Defense, of Defense or United States government. Thanks. Thank you all so much for being here. And for our audience, if you have any questions during our um, conversation, please send them through the Q&A and we'll be monitoring those. So we're going to go ahead and get started because I know we all have a lot to talk about and to learn from each other. So Dr. Bright, I would like to start with you. Um, if you could share with us, which groups should we vaccinate if we're focusing on preventing spread versus preventing um, mortality from COVID? Well, thank you. Actually, I'm going to add the disclaimer as well that, that, that uh, Ryan put on. So my comments are my personal opinion, my professional opinion, and not associated with or representative of the Biden-Harris um, administration. I'm really good to lay that out there to start. But um, it's a really good question. Um, so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the development of these vaccines. Um, and many people may not know quite how much the government gets involved and how the government gets involved in developing are supporting the development of these novel vaccines. The messenger RNA vaccines that are both authorized today from, from Pfizer and Moderna are truly remarkable new technologies. And uh, we're learning a lot about them. We've been investing in them for about 10 years. And the government um, invests and partners with those companies as they develop those vaccines. So we also get to learn a lot about them as they're being developed good attributes of these vaccines that we're very excited about is how fast they can be developed for a rapid response. And, and I think we broke all speed records in getting a vaccine into people and, and through authorization. Let's not forget though, this is the third coronavirus outbreak in 16 years. So we you know, got a little bit of a head start investing in the technologies as well. But the one thing that we're learning about that, that really gets to the heart of your question is you know, who do we vaccinate first with these types of vaccines is a really difficult thing to answer based on what we know or don't know yet about the immune response and how much protection the vaccines give to an individual. We know that the vaccines in the, in the clinical studies have shown that they can prevent illness and severe illness in many cases, but we still don't know if they prevent shedding of the virus or prevent infection or, or further transmission. 
So if you're really trying to prioritize individuals based on whether or not um, they will be protected and, and not spread the virus more, I would say we don't quite have enough information there. But I would focus on um, those who are most vulnerable, those who would be hit hardest with this virus and really are probably less um, able to mount an immune response, even with the vaccine, and those who are hardest to reach. I think if we're really trying to slow the spread of the virus, getting into the heart of the communities where the virus is wreaking the most damage and, and havoc, into the inner city populations and the rural populations and um, black and brown communities and, and Native American communities where we know the virus is spreading more easily and more readily, that is where I would probably try to target my greatest efforts. That being said, that's the hardest population to reach as well. So we need to make sure we're leaning really forward, going the extra mile to reach that last mile for those who are most vulnerable. That's a fantastic insight. Dr. Hooper, do you have something that you want to add? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, just to, to build on that, uh, especially that last point about hard to reach communities. Um, if anyone saw it, there was a, a really fascinating article of, uh, in the New Yorker about San Francisco's response, uh, which really offers an interesting uh, counterpoint to the response, say, in New York. Um, the focus of the article was on the depth and utilization of pre-existing community structures uh, for outreach, first for testing and, and hopefully now for, for vaccination efforts. Um, it's, it's much easier, according to the people interviewed for that article, to get these novel um, issues having to do with both the disease and the vaccine across and engender trust when it's not coming from a new face, when it's coming from someone who's worked in the community uh, for years, sometimes for decades. Um, we at Cornell University have an interesting, um, very long-term relationship with a, a, a major clinic in Haiti called the, the Geskio Clinic. Uh, Dr. Jean Pop is the leader of that clinic. He's also a faculty member at Cornell. Um, over the years, with help of entities like Partners in Health and others, Haiti has um, developed a, a really incredible network of local, and when I say local, I mean, uh, you know, down to the very, very small community, um, uh, health network uh, workers. And, and that's been replicated in places like Rwanda, um, you know, we, we don't have that in New York City. I, I live in downtown Manhattan. It's the densest population uh, in the United States, about 20,000 people per square mile. Uh, and, and if you, on any day of this week, or certainly last week, or the, the week before Thanksgiving, tried to get a COVID test, for example, you would have to go to a non-government, privately run entity, wait in a line that went around the block, uh, you know, get your test with no central reporting to the, the, the city so that they could track what's going on. I mean, there are, there are large structural impediments, not only to getting access to and the trust of the individuals we might want to vaccinate, but because of the past, say, 30 years of history of, of slow defunding of public health, we have trouble even maintaining a, a clinical presence in these places, even without the, the, the deep community connection. So the, the odds are really stacked against public health in terms of being able to accomplish what sometimes seem to be very obvious feats of vaccine logistics. Uh, so it, it's really critical in, in my work modeling the disease and the response to the, the, the disease to, to try to make sure that we have realism. I'll just give one last example before passing on to Ryan. You know, this paper in 2006, uh, one of the first big simulation papers about how a pandemic influenza might spread across the United States. The solution, the optimal solution that these modelers came up with was that we would have a, a targeted pandemic vaccine within two weeks of the pandemic being recognized and we would then, over the next 25 weeks, 
vaccinate 10 million people a week in a steady sequence, essentially from right to left across the country. You know, that's, that's in fairyland. I mean, there's, there's no way that any of that response is, is remotely logistically feasible. And yet, modeling groups and, and entities that are trying to you know, describe optimal responses need to be reminded of what's logistically feasible. And really this, as, as Dr. Bright said, this needs to come up from the community first. There's gotta be a joining of the vaccine logistics community and the community for there to be success in these endeavors. Fantastic insights. Dr. Maves, do you want, do you want to add something? Well, I can say that I'd like to add that I'm clearly amazingly outclassed here by Dr. Bright and Dr. Hubert. And uh, clearly there was some error in the invitation, but I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I, I think probably the perspective I can give is just from clinical practice and from someone involved in, in vaccine trials. And uh, I still have a, uh, I still have a, a small outpatient practice and, um, and when I've, and of course, COVID vaccination is the, the talk of the town uh, in all of my clinic appointments, almost regardless of what the patient happens to be there for. I have a number of patients in San Diego who I take care of for coccidioidomycosis for an endemic fungal infection. And we've, you know, uh, my coxy clinic has largely turned into coxy clinic plus let's talk about COVID for a while. And, and one consideration, uh, and this really reflects what Dr. Hubert and Dr. Bright have said, uh, is you know, patients, particularly communities of color, are very savvy about these kinds of considerations. And in fact, of my, you know, my, my black patients have regularly asked me, well, how many black people are in the trials? And I mean, I can tell them I have a pretty good idea, but getting African-Americans, getting Latinos, getting other communities of color to participate in clinical trials is, a, is an ongoing challenge. And the Coronavirus uh, Prevention Network, uh, the COVID-PN, has been making a lot of very active work. And that's a network run out of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Institute in Seattle, along with some um, government partnership from OWS. Uh, getting communities of color to participate in clinical trials is a challenge. And I think that challenge foreshadows some of our challenges with eventual vaccine rollout too, where we have a, a history of engendering mistrust in, in communities of color and that mistrust is understandable. And we keep having to try uh, to find a way to, to, to earn that trust back. And it's, uh, it is an ongoing challenge. And I can tell my patients with whom I've, many of them I've cared for for a decade or more, and we have a longstanding relationship. They say, well, you know, what do you think about the vaccine? And I can, because it is 2021 now, I can show them my, my uh, vaccine selfie on my phone uh, and say, this is what I think of it, right? But at the same time, I also need to discuss what we're doing to, uh, to include more communities of color in these trials. And then secondarily, just like any clinical trial, making sure the communities who have contributed, who've taken the risks of participating in the studies also then have access to the benefits of that trial, um, that trial participation. Um, you know, for example, the Pfizer, uh, the phase three of the Pfizer study in the New England Journal was at about, about 10% African-Americans in the study. So it was about 3000 people. You know, that's that's pretty good. I mean, that's okay. It does not reflect the morbidity and the mortality of this disease, though. And Alice, I think you and I talked about this the other day. During this whole pandemic, I've intubated one white person, right? Uh, compared with obviously Latinos, where I work in Southern California, African Americans, uh, and other uh, other communities of color. So these are some of the challenges. The AstraZeneca vaccine trial that I'm a, a part of uh, actually changed its enrollment criteria a few weeks ago in order to make sure that we are boosting the numbers of people of color in the trial uh, so that we are targeting the people at the greatest risk so that the trial results are not a trial of you know, middle-aged Caucasians, right? So it's not a, not a randomized trial of COVID vaccine efficacy in you know, doctors. Right, and so I think that's that's an important step, and 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 I can't speak as detailed about the the internal uh, mechanics of the Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, Janssen, the other trials going on, but to say that I 
I believe they're taking a similar approach. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in too. I mean, we've all highlighted, I think, one of the greatest challenges to, to ending this pandemic is uh, taking one of the most powerful tools that have been developed now and getting it into the arms of the people who need it most and who play the, one of the largest roles in helping to stop the pandemic. And uh, again, there's a lot of prioritization. There's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of well-intention to, to be able to reach the most vulnerable people um, and with the vaccines, with the tests, um, with the treatments. Uh, and you've highlighted, again, historical reasons why it's hard to reach many people, historical reasons why the trust isn't there and the vaccine hesitancy exists and it's real. And it's not a conversation from me or a conversation from someone in Washington, D.C. On the, on the television, mostly middle-aged white men, basically, um, and sometimes smiling, sometimes not, saying people should wear their mask and get their vaccine. You know, what I think we need to really do, and I think you both have touched upon it, is identify the, the local messengers, the very non-traditional to us, perhaps, but very traditional in the communities. Some of them is faith-based. Some of it is um, um, athletics or, or celebrity-based, or or some of it is social worker-based. Um, some of it is just very non-traditional that you would not think of as a healthcare professional, but is a community expert and 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 a communication expert and a trusted messenger in a trusted center to be able to administer those vaccines and. That is what we're not doing right now enough of, I think, as we begin to roll out the vaccines. Number one, it also takes money from the federal government and resources. It also takes time to recruit and to educate and to train those people. So none of this has happened yet. Surprisingly, you know, we're a year into this pandemic, probably 10 months of really knowing we're in deep trouble and knowing the vaccines would come out towards the end of this year or early this year. We, 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 we knew that, it's not a surprise. But the educational efforts, the resources to do all this just haven't happened. And all of that continues to sow additional hesitancy and distrust. And what we're seeing now are a lot of healthcare workers, a lot of um, politicians getting their vaccine on TV to try to, you know, again, they're doing this publicly to try to build confidence. And um, some of it I think is backfiring because we don't see enough yet of the people, even if it's a healthcare worker or even if it's a politician, but down in the truly local level who are in contact and communication and touch the people we really need to reach every day. And so we need to really make sure again, I call it going that, that that extra mile to reach that last mile to make sure that the confidence is there because otherwise we're doing a whole lot of things and we won't have someone on the other end to who wants to take the vaccine and i really don't think we should force someone to take a vaccine they don't want yeah it's very it's very important to reach the population i agree i agree with what all of you are saying and Ryan, we did talk about it before, and even being able to speak um, like those more vulnerable population languages is very important. Like being able to speak in Spanish to some of our most vulnerable patients have been like very important to make sure that they got the vaccine and they they trusted that they could take it. Um, how how do we find these people, and why why is it up to local? Um, healthcare, local um, people to find them? Why is it not a more of a government thing or of a like big white plan to do that? I can talk about that, at least from the perspective of someone living in New York. I, I should apologize for the wrong background, but this is what comes on Zoom. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a modeler, a disease modeler. I have been for about, uh, really for about 15 years. So, and for a while, while I was a, an advisor to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, I the advisory board for this entity uh, that's funded by the National Institutes of Health called MIDAS. It's the Modeling of Infectious Disease Agent Study. It's 
essentially one of the premier funding mechanisms for modelers, both in the US and, and in other major um, uh, modeling centers around the world. Uh, so I know a lot of modelers and they all wrote me the first half of March, uh, knowing that I was on the ground as working as a hospitalist in New York, saying, please, please ask New York City to do a serological survey. And, and the phrase that all of them used almost uniformly and almost verbatim was, we are flying blind. Um, so I asked multiple times at the city level, at the state level for a while. I was um, a, a volunteer on the New York State COVID task force, providing modeling input. Uh, and the, the universal response was, we don't have enough PPE to do anything but clinical work. We don't have enough reagents. For a while it was, we don't have enough nasal swabs. Uh, they, there was just, there was no capacity to do anything but keep up. Unfortunately, that last minute rush is how it seems a tremendous amount of public health is not necessarily conducted, but perhaps the proper way to think about it is that's the way it's really funded when it comes to things like this. We, we don't have long-term plans in place on the ground to create the structures that we can snap our fingers and bring into play when events like this happen. That is a long-term strategic liability that almost everyone in public health, I mean, if you went down to the preparedness, uh, you know, uh, conventions that happen or used to happen annually in Atlanta, you know, everyone who goes to those things knows that this is a vulnerability. And yet the difficulty of getting that across to the funders, to the policymakers is, is very difficult. Um, on the flip side, you know, we, we don't have a healthcare system that's set up to really permit this because it's commercially based, highly fractured, with multiple incentives that don't prioritize spending much for preparedness. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on preparedness. I spent one year as an advisor to the National Hospital Preparedness Program, fabulous people, hundreds of millions of dollars. When it came down to my hospital, it wound up being you know, enough maybe for part of a part-time position or a little stack of PPE. So, so you know, we're, we're talking about a, a, a real sea change if we want to have a system whereby we can, when things like this occur, rapidly tap into existing trusted networks for information, for healthcare delivery, for delivery of vaccines, et cetera. We don't have it. We won't get it anytime soon. And even if we wanted to get it, it would take a tremendous investment, a real sea change in how we think about public health in this country. I'm not sure the country really wants it. Uh, and so we have to live with the consequences. Again, that's my personal opinion. And even if we could develop all of this, how do we make sure that in a hundred years from now, when the next pandemic happens, that we are not going to be here anymore? Like everything that is in place is found and is followed. And, you know, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, this, this is where I would uh, refer over to Ryan, you know, the, the military practices for things that they hope will never occur every day. Um, Pandemics are one of those things, and yet we don't have a similar type of uh, intensity of focus about it in medicine because we sort of hope it won't happen. You're saying 100 years is highly optimistic. I mean, I think many people would say maybe just around the corner will be the next one, or maybe it's the new variant of the current one. Yeah, I mean, that's always hard to know with with emerging viruses, right? I mean, technically, it's only been 10 years since the re last respiratory pandemic, which was H1N1. Uh, obviously, the scale of that uh, was, you know, uh, remarkably different. And we probably would have had a COVID-style influenza pandemic in the 1950s if it were not for the development of the in first influenza vaccines. Uh, which is which is interesting to to consider that you know the earlier influenza vaccines were even you know 
more underwhelming than our contemporary influenza vaccines are, but still largely prevented a bad flu year from turning into a COVID-esque catastrophe, um, which is interesting. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, what the military does, um, you know, I'd say one thing that the military has to do a little differently uh, than other kind of communities within our country is that we have to be ready to deploy to, uh, to fulfill whatever mission the National Command Authority assigns to us at any given time. And so that requires certain, uh, how should I put it, uh, a certain blunt realism. I had the privilege early on uh, in the pandemic of working a bit with uh, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot here in San Diego. And uh, uh, so military basic training is, uh, there's actually a great cartoon uh, out there uh, about uh, all the old timey diseases that one sees in, in boot camp. We actually had a, had a, a large uh, shigatoxin producing E. coli outbreak there a few years back with a number of Marines uh, developing hemolytic uremic syndrome, for example. If everyone recovered, it is good to be 18 years old. But the, um, these, sorts of frequent, largely viral outbreaks uh, in military training is a focus of intense attention by the Department of Defense. Uh, even if people are not hospitalized for it, and they often are, um, uh, there is an impact on training, on readiness, on how long it takes to get someone ready to go and serve. Uh, and so there's long-standing monitoring programs for respiratory disease throughout the entire military basic training apparatus across all four services plus the Coast Guard. Um, and so very early in the pandemic, uh, and I'm talking about MCRD San Diego because I happen to live in San Diego, um, a number of us went over and were advising the commanding general and his staff on how to approach COVID protection at MCRD, and we talked about, you know, what are the what are the potential weak links in the chain here? Well, it's probably the drill instructors and the officers who live at home. Um, what are the things? What are the risks we have to accept? What are the risks that we can mitigate? And the amazing thing is, is that although there have been a fair number of COVID cases at MCRD San Diego, um, a staple of, of the internal medicine service at, at my hospital, uh, when I was a resident with my residents today, was recruit pneumonia. That is an 18-year-old, 19-year-old Marine Corps recruit admitted with pneumonia. Recruit pneumonia has vanished. It's gone. There have been, there, it's almost gone because all of the measures that the Marines have taken to reduce the burden of COVID has also eliminated the adenoviral infections, the influenza, the rhinovirus, all of the LRTIs that we used to see on a regular basis to the point where the Marines are, are talking about, we might not go back to the old way. We might keep doing this, all of these COVID prevention measures, this NPI, this is before the va any vaccine that becomes available for them. We might keep doing this forever because we are happy with how this has improved readiness. Um, it's an interesting little thought lesson, I think. Um, uh, similar things with deploying warships. Um, some of it has to do with um, improving medical capabilities at sea. Uh, I do have a few good friends who are presently deployed out on aircraft carriers right now uh, to provide support in the event of a of another COVID outbreak comparable to the well-known uh, one on the Theodore Roosevelt, which has been published in MWR and the New England Journal and is all available for public review. Um, one advantage the Roosevelt had is they were able to pull into port in Guam. But if we were engaged in combat operations, you wouldn't have been able to pull into port. So what do you do now? Obviously, no one is going into this expecting uh, to go into combat, but ships, de warships deploy in case they need to go do warship stuff. And uh, just talking about how we prepare for things that we think are unlikely. So that's why we have pulmonary critical care physicians and internal med medicine physicians out on these ships right now, just for exactly those sorts of contingencies. Uh, similarly overseas, there are plans in place at, uh, at overseas bases uh, to make sure that we're able to care for patients in remote and austere environments. Uh, and hopefully some of that data that we've developed and plans we've developed over the years for care of the critically ill patient in the austere environment can be applied 
to crisis care here back at home. That was certainly a, a lesson I would never want to have to apply here at home. But there is some wisdom, I think, in knowing what you can do with less when you need to. Um, so, yeah. I'm going to agree with you both. I mean, and you made the comment, though, um, Dr. Hooper, that really concerned me. You know, they said they're flying blind back in, in March, April, May, June. You know, we are still now we're in January of next year. We still don't have enough PPE. We still don't have enough tests. We still don't have enough swabs. We have millions of diagnostic tests sitting in the warehouse. We don't have a swab to go with them. So we can send them out to the communities to test people. So. I mean, this begs for a sea change in how we think about preparedness response and how we invest in it going forward. I mean, in the past, the government's been really good about buying stuff and, and storing stuff, but we don't often think about who makes the stuff or where the stuff to make the stuff comes from, basically the raw materials and supply chains, et cetera. And most of that is not easily accessible. And so as we think about how we can improve a, a response in the future, and we need to think about the countermeasures, the stuff, if it's the, the diagnostics or the tests or the components or the vaccines or the drugs. Um, but we also need to think about this capabilities-based response and, and the capacity to respond. And capabilities mean that, you know, this is why, this is why we invested in messenger RNA vaccines, you know, a decade ago because we knew that we could not afford the time in a rapidly spreading outbreak from those models from influenza. Every day counts in, in those models from for a novel pandemic influenza strain. In six months, we were, we were projected to have millions of people dead. And so uh, we knew that speed was essential, but speed alone is not enough if you don't have a sufficient supply of those in the right place and at the right time in the right quantities. And so we started investing in messenger RNA so we could have a tool that we could drop a new virus sequence in and, and respond very quickly. And we were waiting for this right moment, this perfect storm to test out that concept of, of having you know, rapidly spreading um, organism pathogens such as this virus, and an opportunity to get efficacy data, which many vaccines for influenza, I can't remember the last time we actually did an efficacy trial for an influenza vaccine. They're all based on, I'm as good as what's already on the marketplace. And as we know, there's room for improvement in those. This was a great perfect storm to get a new technology out, a new platform and response capability that now I hope we can leverage for influenza and for other emerging diseases as well. What's beautiful about this platform is how we can dial in optimization. We might be able to dial in those cross-reactive epitopes for the influenza virus to make it more um, broadly protective towards a universal flu vaccine. We might find ourselves now with the coronavirus as we're starting to learn more and more of these variants emerging, um, seem being captured in South Africa or being in the UK and as they're spreading around the globe and, and infecting more people, um, we might find that we will benefit from these modern technologies to dial in a variant of the vaccine and have it quickly. In the past, it would take us months, if not a year, to grow the virus and isolate it and then make a new seed and then put it in an egg or a cell and grow and the yields would always be poor and you have to add a lot of adjuvant to it and it just complicated things. So. It's a good example of a capability investment, investment in the capability for rapid response. And we can translate that type of investment for capabilities into other vaccines or therapeutics, diagnostics, supply chains, healthcare systems as well. But what is taken, as you highlighted, is investment. And not only investment to get there. You know, we have gotten there with numerous technologies a number of times in the past. And then we look the other way. We don't use it, we don't sustain it, and it goes away. And so as we get there with new technologies and capabilities and, and infrastructure and our healthcare systems and bolstering the things we need to bolster to survive this pandemic, we need to already start the dialogue on the cost to sustain it and how we utilize it in our daily lives so it's there when we need it the next time. And then that changes, the sea changes from a, an attitude of 
buying stuff. I'm going to have something in a warehouse, in a stockpile that's going to magically save everyone's life versus I'm investing now in capabilities that's going to allow us to respond faster, but I have to sustain it in non-war time or else it won't be there. We're still flying blind, by the way. That really concerned me. You really yeah. tripped me there. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with everything you said. You know, back in the, the mid-2000s, we were funded by the federal government. Uh, and when I say we, it was Weill Cornell, my institution, um, and Apt Associates up in Boston, and uh, a private contractor, uh, Rocco Casagrande, um, uh, to build what, what at the time was called the hospital surge model. We, we were asked by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to, to uh, build logistical models, imagining what would be needed to respond to, uh, in the end, 13 different national security type scenarios, including a pandemic, uh, other types of uh, explosive, uh, you know, running the gamut of, of what's called C. Bernie, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, et cetera. Um, and in the, in the influenza pandemic, where we used actually output from some of the Midas, the early Midas models, you know, the, the numbers were astonishingly large. We, we calculated at one point that we would need 2 billion gallons of Purell for, uh, for sustaining the initial response to a, an influenza outbreak. Um, that was turned off. It, literally, the model was, you know, the key was turned off uh, in 2009 when that particular federal agency decided that it no longer wanted to play a role in preparedness research. Um, and unfortunately, at that time, no other entity in the federal research funding sphere uh, picked up that ball. And so, uh, you know, I've heard anecdotes about how that, you know, one or other of the national labs has, has continued to run that model, but, but basically all that knowledge was lost. It's mothballed now. You can find it on the web, but it's as an archive. It doesn't actually work. Um, jumping to the present day, I was just um, uh, very privileged to be part of a three-year project by the National Academies to look at the evidence base for public health emergency response. One of the conclusions from this effort, which was led by Ned Kalanch of um, the Colorado Health Trust, um, was that that gap in terms of an organizing principle for how we not only create these capability sets, but meet them and then sustain them the research that needs to go into that is, is missing. There, there, is no, there has been no national overarching, well-funded pathway for researchers type of support for that. Um, you know, with the joke among the various folks on this panel who included some deans of public health schools and, and very well uh, recognized researchers is that we would never suggest to junior colleagues to go into this field because there's no future in it, because there's no funding stream, the way there would be for much better funded, critically important public health things. I'm thinking things like opioid abuse, which has its own NIH you know, entity. Um, but public health preparedness really has fallen through the gaps. And it's, it's a remarkable thing because when things like this happen, not only does everyone expect that that infrastructure and background and research understand research-based understanding of what to do is there but they expect it to be instantly available nationwide and it, it just isn't it's it's quite a remarkable dearth of of substance you all make fascinating points and in yes i am a optimist and i hope we by the next pandemic in a hundred years we will have answers and plans for all of that. Um, I will shift gears a little bit because we got an audience um, question and I would like Dr. Maves to start to um, share his thoughts on what's different with this vaccine that we are allowing people to decide if they want it or not, as opposed to like measles, mumps, rubella, that at some point for kids to get to school, they had to have it. So why, why is it different now that we are with such a like 
easily spread virus that is killing a lot of people, what, like why are we not doing the same? What is different? Well, it's a great question. Of course, you know, understand that I'm, you know, limited in what I can say about policy. But in terms of a, a practical legal matter right now, um, you know, these drugs are not FDA approved and we don't have the legal authority to require anyone in vaccines or drugs uh, to accept a non-FDA approved agent, uh, even in the military, uh, you know, at my hospital, which is a Department of Defense facility, uh, receipt of the vaccine, it is made widely available. It is easy to get. Uh, our command has done a great job in the vaccine rollout for our institution, um, but it is voluntary. And now once it becomes obviously an FDA approved drug, then the military can mandate it. And then we can have active duty people in uniform be required to receive it. Um, so I think that's probably part of it. Now, whether COVID vaccination becomes part of, say, routine childhood vaccination, such as the MMR, is, is I think, going to be dependent on a few things. One is going to be what is the impact of pediatric vaccination on severe disease overall? Certainly, we've seen there, are, there clearly are phenotypes of severe COVID disease in children, the uh, MISC syndrome in particular being the classic one, but even just classic severe pneumonia uh, in some kids whether or not, and I am not a pediatrician, um, whether or not um, vaccinating children is A, effective, it probably should be, but those trials are still going on right now. And secondly, do, does that vaccination prevent transmission to others? And again, in, and I think we're all being scientifically honest when we say that, that transmission blockade is not yet a proven feature of this vaccine. Right now, I, I would kind of off to the side say, but if it's not, then it is totally unlike every other viral vaccine ever. Right. Perhaps not ever, but certainly the great majority of effective vaccines also inhibit transmission. And there is a concept for that. There's a model for that a pediatric vaccination to block adult disease. That model is the MMR preventing kids with rubella from transmitting it to uh, to pregnant women and all of the fetal consequences of uh, rubella in pregnancy, and actually pneumococcal vaccination. Certainly pneumococcal vaccination in kids has benefits in preventing pneumonia and otitis media and sinusitis, but the biggest public health impact of pneumococcal vaccination is so that little kids don't give grandma and grandpa pneumococcal pneumonia, right? So figuring those sorts of things out are gonna be one of the challenges in deciding how it is. And, and, and I, uh, like I said, I am I am in uniform. I am a wholly owned subsidiary of the government, um, but uh, you know it will be the leadership people like Dr. Bright, Dr. Hubert, and others who will help us make those sorts of policy decisions about that. But right now, it's not an FDA-approved drug. There is no legal authority uh, to make anyone take it, and uh, and that is the law, and that is how we do it. Just want to um, piggyback on that a little bit. It, it's also interesting that that this would be very specifically um, given the, the the dramatic age distribution of severe COVID, um, perhaps a harder sell for pediatric patients than others. I mean, than say Gardasil, which you know is is intended to help that individual not get cancer in the future. This would be vaccinating this person in order to, and, and really a lot of the data about this comes from flu, where it's been well proven that children are some of the vectors. In fact, the, the very important quote unquote report nine that came out on March 16th, this is the big modeling study from Imperial College that the next day changed the UK strategy from, well, slightly hands-off to absolute first lockdown, um, very explicitly used flu models to imagine what COVID might do. And as a component of that, used this pediatric transmission as a main means of modeling the spread of the disease through society. A group in the UK used the same model a couple of months later to reevaluate uh, what that report nine found and, and suggested that maybe kids actually play a much different role 
in COVID and don't have that same type of transmission role. So I, I would totally agree with you that the science needs to lead this. And, and again, the science is an early stage. You know, I'm sure there are uh, many modelers who could be on the call who would disagree with me about that, but uh, because they might have strong views about it being one way or the other. But this, this disease clearly in some important ways is not like pandemic influenza. Uh, you know, there, there are hypotheses out there, some from colleagues at Cornell, uh, that would suggest that whereas with pandemic influenza, the determinant, the main determinant of whether you have severe disease or, or not has to do with you meaning your comorbidities, your age, et cetera. It's possible that with COVID, it's not only that, but also the way in which you get COVID, the, the location, the multiplicity of infections. Uh, you know, it, it all gets back to this idea that maybe the reason why the Northeast had such a terrible outbreak and, and still remains in terms of per capita mortality higher than almost every state um, the, the density of that area, the fact that people were riding the subway in the first weeks of March in New York City with nobody wearing masks and a good proportion of the city being infected, it's possible that the, the intensity of the, of the exposure, um, either from multiple individuals or from a single individual, actually changes the clinical severity, which doesn't really happen with flu, but definitely happens with other coronaviruses. Uh, and I'm getting this from my coronavirus specialists at, at Cornell and, and other places. It's, it's very interesting. And so matching that with the prescriptions for who should get vaccinated and when will be, I think, a, an interesting uh, future topic of a lot of inquiry. And we have to go very carefully because it's, it's easy to bulldoze through these things and then be proven wrong. Yeah, I'm going to add one more level of concern based on the unknown still when we talk about these variants that are emerging. So they, the, some of the information we're learning about the variants, um, the B117 in out of the UK, at least detected in the UK and the South African variant as well, um, indicate that they might have adapted now um, and maybe they are binding more tightly to the receptor, maybe leading to a higher viral load and certainly to increase transmissibility of those. And so it, the other hypothesis that is associated with that is perhaps these viruses are adapting or evolving in immune compromised individuals or those maybe on long-term convalescent antiseric treatment. And so as we're thinking about those populations of, of people who might you know, be creating this opportunity as we see with many viruses, influenza virus as well, for this adaptation, you know, do we have sufficient data and should we be prioritizing vaccination in some of those with very vulnerable immune systems to try to reduce or, or manage better this adaptability of the virus so we don't have more of these variants created sooner? I'll throw that to the ethicists out there. I, and, and honestly, just as a, as a side note, um, this problem of these new variants is to loop it back to the vaccines really potentially a strength of the mrna platform right one could hypothesize that we just take the new sequence and plug it into the machine and we get a new mrna transcript that can serve as a component of a new multivalent vaccine and i think it's it's good to remember that you know vaccine the valency of our vaccines change routinely. I mean, just uh, to go back to Gardasil earlier, Gardasil uh, has increased in valency several times, or at least a, a few times since it's been in clinical use. Uh, Pneumovax uh, has been pretty consistent, but Prevnar, the pneumococcal uh, conjugate vaccine, uh, changed uh, to a 13-valent vaccine relatively recently. So we're always having to adapt and revisit, and the fact that that could be potentially such a simpler process uh, with uh, the mRNA platform is, is a thing to give us a little bit of reassurance going forward. And it, it, it remains unproven whether there is uh, an issue with cross immunogenicity between these newer strains and the older strains. Uh, no particular reason to think not, but I think uh, COVID has, if, if nothing else, COVID has always been full of surprises. 
and uh, there's always a first time for everything. But in terms of if your if your goals to vaccinate were to be to block transmission, I think we have rather than to necessarily prevent severe disease. And I personally am inclined to think that it's to prevent severe disease. But if we were going to target populations to block transmission, as we're talking about four different communities, I think that's going to be really variable depending on who you look at. I mean, you know, if I'm in San Diego, I would say we should vaccinate mostly, you know, uh, surfers and motorcyclists, but I'm not totally sure that that's true. That's just my impression. Um, but, but, but the fact that it's not children does seem to be, at least not young children, does seem to be the case. It's fascinating. You know, we, we've got a lot of data in New York City to, to, to work with now, aside from actual representative serological data. You know, there is serological data up on the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene website, but they will freely admit that it is a convenience sample. It's just whoever showed up to get an antibody test. And so it's very difficult to, to really figure out. We're, we're developing some, and I say we, but it's really my colleagues in the UK have developed some very sophisticated uh, methods for back calculating what the exposure must have been to produce those. But even those sophisticated um, uh, mathematical transformations require information that we don't have. For example, which test did you use to do the antibody test? What's the sensitivity and specificity? We don't have that for, for New York City. But, but what, we, what we do have in New York is the ability to look at a zip code level or a, a, a neighborhood level and overlay other aspects of sociodemographics and, and, and racial and ethnic characteristics of these neighborhoods. And one thing that we and other groups have discovered is that crowding, overcrowding is really a, a major risk factor for the development. We have a paper that we're about to submit for publication that, um, that looks specifically at overcrowding and multi-generational households. And of course, those two things have many associations with other features of society that correlate with more severe COVID. And so it raises the question, well, you know, we could come up with all sorts of interesting ways to prioritize vaccination. We can say anybody who lives with more than two people in one room, which is the American community sort of the definition of overcrowdedness, come on, you're first in line. Um, it, it, it's interesting. It, the, the multiplicity of ways that we could prioritize is, is quite dramatic. This is why, uh, again, today in, in, in the New York Times, there's a, an interesting set of four ideas about how to do vaccination better. I'll put that in, in quotation marks. And some of them involve simple lotteries, uh, you know, because it's so difficult to come up with any other better way. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, Dr. Bright has, has ideas about how to do it better. Um, but but it, all I wanted to say was, if you look hard enough, you can certainly find new and, and interesting ways to say, maybe this group should be next. Uh, getting it to them then and having them receive it is, is going to be the next hard part. This is an amazing conversation. I could stay here for three more hours, but unfortunately we're coming to the end of our time together. So I wanted to thank you all so much for participating um, on behalf of CHEST. And I was hoping that again, we could do Dr. Bright, Dr. Hooper, and Dr. Maves, um, each of you to leave us with final message about vaccines or who you wish could come and get their vaccines right away. Um, you already touched a little bit on this, but um, if you could leave us with your final thoughts about vaccine or the message you want to go into the community, that would be great. And again, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, thank you, Alice, and thanks to Chest. And it's been a privilege to be here at the, the fellow panelists here. And I'm, I'm really humbled by their expertise. And, and um, there's so much that we could say as a closing message. I think um, this stage of the outbreak and this stage of the response that we're in, um, when I think about the, the challenges that we have in front of us um, in terms of administering vaccine to everyone who needs it, to really impact the spread of this virus. I mean, it's a huge challenge. And I do think that we need to be realistic and be honest about that. And I think that um, we do a disservice if we overpromise, 
a delivery schedule or a timeline or um, dose volume or whatever it might be and um, stand at great risk of under under delivering because there's so much we don't yet know about the production and the availability of the vaccines. We don't know much still about the challenges. We know the challenges, but how to really address them in our healthcare system to ramp up and scale up and bolster and get the staff. And then also the challenge of earning trust and confidence on all spec on the other end of the spectrum. So we're all in this together is my message. And you know, the government can't come save you alone. It's gonna take all of us, um, public, private sectors, um, academic sectors, um, individuals, to play a role to end this pandemic. And that is a new approach that I know President-elect Biden has in mind, his commitment to working together hand in hand at all levels across our country to reach everyone. And it's a huge challenge. We're gonna need everyone's help. Thank you. Um, not much I can add to that. I think Dr. Bright, you know, certainly has the experience and, and the, the breadth of vision to capture the challenges and also the, the potential. And I want to thank him for the in, integral role he played in getting us to where we are and in getting my shot into my arm. Um, uh, the only thing that I think might be helpful to add uh, would be that there are other sciences that desperately need to be involved. Uh, you know, we, we are the country that created the system that could tell you whether you will get next day or two day delivery on one of 100 million things in 0.7 seconds. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Amazon. I work with engineers who helped Amazon create their warehousing system. You know, the, we have the best supply chain engineers in the world uh, at our fingertips. And typically they're not part of public health when, when we think about these uh, logistical aspects of, of securing the health of the public. Uh, they should be, they should be at the table. They should be at the table from day one. And the, the industry organizations that generations of engineers have gone into and have built up to be the best in the world, they also need to be at the table. It's interesting how divided that group, set of groups is. Um, uh, you know, there, it, it, the whole question of why Pfizer chose to do its logistics on its own yeah, it could probably lead to a couple of PhDs. Um, but we need to narrow that gap and we need to bring other sciences into the, into the mix because it will just make everything better. So that's, that's my hopeful vision. Well, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't add anything meaningful to what uh, Dr. Bright and Dr. Hubert said. But I would say this for probably for the audience who are mostly going to be practicing critical care physicians, practicing pulmonologists, people at the bedside, uh, which is that we, those of us in clinical practice, Dr. Hubert, Dr. Gallo, myself, uh, and most of the audience need to be fierce, unapologetic advocates for vaccinations in particular and public health in general, right? Especially those of us who work in fairly technical, often narrow aspects of medicine as critical care can sometimes be. We tend to remember all this, but remember that we are voices for, for keeping our patients from needing us, right? Uh, and and there, are, there are a few times in my life when I would, I would like to be obsolete uh, as much as I would now. And I, I suspect many of us feel the same way, that um, we need to give honest advice to our patients about vaccines. It is downplaying things like side effects. There's a very, a very interesting, and I thought very insightful article. Uh, it was an editorial uh, in JAMA Internal Medicine some months ago about uh, by a nurse at, gosh, I want to say UCSF. I think she was a nurse practitioner at UCSF who participated in one of the COVID vaccine trials and wrote an article about how she had some pretty dramatic side effects. And I was lucky. I've had trivial, if any, adverse events from my, my vaccination. Um, but, you know, she wrote, said, these are the things that happened to me afterwards, but I would still do it. And one of the things we need to do is establish expectations to tell people there is a chance you will feel kind of lousy the next day. There's a chance you could feel really lousy the next few days, but it's worth it. But it's worth it. And telling people candidly, not everything's going to be fine, but said, be ready 
for some side effects. Be prepared for it, but also um, be unapologetic for that. Right, letting people know that uh, that this is the right thing for themselves, for their communities, for their families, and and speaking up vocally in favor of it, um, especially knowing that there are parts of our of our society and societies. Uh, certainly, Western Europe has its own uh, anti-vaccination movement as well. It's not a uniquely American problem. Um, but but speaking up against the the mistruths, but also being honest about the things we don't know. Um, that would be my my closing message. Get your vaccine. If you haven't gotten your vaccine yet and you can, correct that error immediately. Thanks. Thank you again all for participating. This was a lovely hour. And on behalf of Chess, I would like to thank our um, listeners and viewers and to also thank everyone on the front lines taking care of sick COVID patients and all our patients. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody.